Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the EQ Emotional Elevator podcast, where I discuss challenges in the digital world and how we can use emotional intelligence to bridge them. I have amazing guests on the podcast, as always, and today I am very excited and honored to have Bianca with me. Bianca and I met actually on LinkedIn. That's where I meet most of my guests because when you network and you're active, you meet amazing people. Bianca is, works at the Office of Communication in Liechtenstein and she deals with legal and compliance affairs. And she's going to correct me if I misstated that when she introduces herself. But Bianca has also been chosen as Cybersecurity Woman of the Year in the legal profession which I think is amazing because we need to celebrate more women in the cybersecurity industry and the contribution they bring, but also because the legal part of cybersecurity is critical. We see a lot of news and headlines and liabilities and regulatory, and often it's shown in a quite negative light. And I think that is just a friction of the, the story. There's so much good going on, which is why I'm excited to have this conversation with Bianca. I'm going to stop here and give you the floor, Bianca, to introduce yourself more, to tell us about your journey and how you got into cybersecurity, perhaps a little bit about your personal hobbies and passion. Okay. Thank you very much, Nadia. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a great pleasure being here today with you on the podcast. As you said correctly, I'm a legal and compliance officer at the Liechtenstein Office for Communications. We are the national regulatory authority for different areas, electronic communications, including radio frequencies, the media sector, signature and trust services, the postal sector, and starting on January 1st, 2024, my big passion besides cybersecurity, the space sector. In my role, I have several fields of responsibilities, including work on the topic cybersecurity and space, or for example, the representation of Liechtenstein in advisory committees of two international satellite organizations, ITSO and UTELSAT. Uh, with ITSO, I'm actually cur the current chair of the advisory committee, uh, which I feel very honored about. Also, I participate in com committees and working groups, including the Barrack Cybersecurity Working Group. And yeah, another one of my tasks is also the drafting of Legal Act. I was very happy to be part of the drafting team for the Liechtenstein Cybersecurity Act and co-drafted also our Space Act. Wonderful. You give me a little bit of nostalgia because when mm -hmm. I was working at NATO, actually I worked very closely with our legal department and we negotiated a lot of memorandum of understanding, legal agreement basis with member nations when we provided NATO software solution and especially when cyber became operational domain. It was a holistic approach across departmental and legal. We had a very good relationship with legal. Not always seamless, but a very important one. Which brings me actually to the next question, because I think when we uh, look at cybersecurity and when we look at the amount of data breaches and the amount of uh, investigations, legal fines, regulation changes. You mentioned the NIST directive uh, that came into the, uh, force last year, but will be applicable this year. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that. The Cyber Resiliency Act here in Europe that's going to come most likely into force in January, which is going to be a game changer for how we develop cyber secure software. 
But in the US, we have the SEC regulation as well that forces companies to disclose data breaches within a certain amount of time. And there are probably many more regulations. As a business, whether you are a big corporation with a team of lawyers, but also small business or a startup, and you work in high-tech or data-intensive software, where do you start? And how can we reduce this fear we have when it comes to including legal experts and including the legal perspective right from the bat? Yeah, that's a very good question. You mentioned the, the various legal acts that we have now in the, the European Union. They've just reminded me, because you mentioned also before my journey. And when I finished my law degrees in 2017, which was like my second educational, I started working for the University of Liechtenstein and focusing on digitalization, financial markets, and also cybersecurity. And it was, to me, really fascinating to see on the one side what hackers are able to do, how individuals and also companies handle their data and cybersecurity in sometimes a negligent, carefree attitude, what consequences such behavior could have. And this led me to organize the first cybersecurity and law conference uh, at the university in 2018. Yeah? And this was The first time when the Denise Directive, yeah, which is now replaced by the Denise II Directive, uh, came was became applicable in 2018, and I invited a white attacker, Thorsten Hönke, a great guy, and he showed the audience uh, how easy it was to hack yeah, from one's credit card details up to an atomic power plant, which I think was a great uh, wake-up call for a lot of people attending the conference. And then we started saying, okay, we, we also need the, the education for the people because the, the legal landscape is evolving and uh, the uh, threat landscape is evolving. So um, I founded the certificate program, Digital Legal Officer, where uh, we still have uh, a specific module on cybersecurity and law. And to come back now to your question, I think something like this becomes more and more important because when you look how the, the legal landscape, especially in Europe, has evolved in the past years, it's incredible. We have so many different uh, legal requirements and you need to know, am I in, covered by this directive or by this regulation or not there? Yeah, because it depends on the size and in which sector you are and everything. Yeah. So I think the And of course, small companies or medium companies not always have their own legal departments. Yeah? So it's crucial yeah, to work together with legal advisors, yeah, whether if they're in-house or, or external. Yeah? See them as a trusted ally, actually, yeah? to actually for all CISOs and also people involved in cybersecurity. I think this the role of legal advisors in cybersecurity is becoming increasingly significant from strategic compliance, risk management, policy development, incident response and litigation support, cross-border compliance, education, training, and so on. Yeah. I think this is becoming more and yeah. more important. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I remember from my time, I think relationship building is so important and we really applied curiosity instead of judgment because From a functional perspective, legal is there to minimize liability, of course, so it's risk averse. So when you're working with innovation departments or research and development or business development or sales, it's more risk tolerant and it can cause some friction. But I think when you apply the hat of curiosity, 
we actually achieved so much of our objectives working hand in hand with legal. So it was really a partnership. And, and that's how then the big boss also felt more secure, not necessarily in reducing the risk, but in managing the risk and being very clear and having the legal people involved from the beginning, mm-hmm. which actually brings me to, we're going to just touch upon a very uh, interesting case in history, which is the Uber data breach 2016. I was very happy when you proposed to discuss this case study because I wrote about it and I also did a solo podcast. So now to do a podcast with a legal and compliance expert is even, is great. And I would love to you to run us through a little bit on from a legal point of view, perhaps what are some of the lessons learned for CISOs and C-suite leaders alike? He he actually just came out in the sense, not came out of the closet, <laughs> I mean, he spoke up in terms of what happened and he's going to do more so now that he is allowed. And one of the things he said that he did report to the CEO, so they were aware and I think this is a really important point because perhaps several CEOs or other C-suites think they are not held liable, but this is not necessarily the case when you look at the legal landscape. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your insights uh, on this case and some takeaways that, that mm. our uh, audience can implement. No. Yeah, the infamous 2016 Uber breach. Yeah? I think it's yeah. a very um, yeah. uh, interesting case yeah? um, for the ones who are not um, so familiar with the case. Um, in 2016, hackers breached Uber systems and accessed names, email addresses, and phone numbers of up to 57 million users of the uh, Uber app, as well as the names and drivers of the driver's license numbers of around 600,000 drivers in the United States. So it was really a huge breach, a huge impact. And of course, we all know the question is not whether you will be hacked or not, but when you will be hacked. So it is all about prevention, preparedness, and effect how you react and what your incident response plan looks like. Yeah? And the incident response of Uber led really ample room for improvement there and was really highly criticized huh? because instead of alerting the users and authorities, Uber paid the hackers um, ransom, uh, $100,000, maybe in the hope to keep quiet or, or resolve the incident as, as quickly as possible. But the thing was that the company failed to disclose the breach. A lot of drivers, for example, only found out about the, the incident through the media. Yeah? And this is something that not only shows how a data breach affects your business success in dollars or in in euros, but also in reputation. And this breach also affected the company legally and notably, as you said, the the CISO, Joe Sullivan, who was sentenced to three years of probation for felony obstruction and misprison for not reporting the breach. And as I said, it has been extensively discussed whether it was right to to convict Sullivan or not, and which impact this would have in finding the right people also for the position of thesis in the case that they can personally be charged now. And as you also said, the question was also why was only he held responsible, but not the CEO and also not the the general counsel, because as you said, he had um, reported to them. When does not reporting of a breach becomes obstruction and misprison. So I think it is very important uh, to be clear uh, when it comes here to the requirements. 
and what is expected from companies and their teams. Yeah, they need to understand what they have to do. And of course, the legal advisors have to help to understand what these requirements are. Yeah? So a CISO should maintain a very close relationship with the general counselor and ensure that it is a group effort and not just not just the CISO who has to do this. Yeah? So it's more like a team sport, of course, than just being a one-man show. Yeah. 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 And with this Richard itself yeah, and with Sullivan, I think there's a lot of things we don't know yet, or which are probably not public. Yeah. But I think it shows very well how the interplay of legal requirements and cybersecurity and also how the emotional intelligence factors have an effect if such a significant incident happens. Yeah. Um, it's very important to think straight there and be very clear-headed there. And I think this only can happen if you are well-prepared and have an incident response plan, uh, yeah. including, for example, communication, uh, because fear and uncertainty, feelings of helplessness and vulnerability, stress, anxiety, frustration, anger, and all of these are emotions that are not very good advisors yeah, in such a situation. Yeah, it was actually going to be my, my, my next question. I, and I and I would love to hear your view, but I think from my experience, it's already, uh, I always say in NATO, we were always prepared because we were either in conflict or being prepared in conflict. When it comes to the private sector, when it comes to the, the, the cybersecurity industry, and it depends also region or countries, but because of the workload or the portfolio of business challenges, not every company is taking preparedness seriously. It's like it only acts out of sense of urgency, which is why there's always a reactive approach versus a proactive approach, even if we have incident after incident, right? This is where the Istari and, uh, and Oxford University released a report where CEOs of billion euros and dollars industry said it becomes an emotional crisis because precisely when we, if you do these top tabletop exercises and you have an incident response plan simulation, when there is no perceived threat, then not exercising those emotions, what you will actually do under pressure or understanding how you would react in terms of emotional intelligence level, who you have on your incident response team, who you have on leadership is going to impact when the S hits the fan, because then we become our stress response mode, which is only normal. And I think the cybersecurity industry perhaps is changing now. It's quite a hard security, quite very seen as non-weak, non-vulnerable. So talking about these emotions and understanding them is quite, comes quite as a, as a shock or uncomfortable, which is why I love shocking in a good way. <laughs> In helping people understand that it's actually so important to be emotionally prepared as well. Whether you are a woman or whether you are a man, it doesn't matter because when we feel cornered, how do we show up under stress? How do we show up on adversity? One of the things I wrote in the blog for Uber, the Sullivan, is he was dealing with another investigation at the same time. So we can talk about it, but I don't think we comprehend the pressure in that moment being asked to pay a ransomware, being pressured by top leadership, being responsible for a data breach, still uh, answering to another investigation at the time. These are all things that come to you at the same time. Now, how would you act? You don't know unless you are going through it. Understanding those emotions is important. I don't mm. know what your views are. You are. 
No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think this is an, an a very important factor that is maybe not yet in everybody's heads, that this also plays a crucial role and that you also have to develop this emotional intelligent intelligence. But it's I've just had last week a discussion actually with a colleague from Canada uh, about how the cybersecurity landscape evolved there. Yeah? And he compared it to ice hockey. Yeah? So when you look like back decades of years, yeah, when everybody was just on in on their eyes without any protection. So like it evolved there, we also involve evolve in cybersecurity. Of course, the threats also evolve, but yes. also our protection measures evolve and we're getting better and better. And this is just another step to prepare us better if in case any incident happens. And I think this is something we, we really need to train to stay cool-headed if something like that happens. And that is only possible if you also develop your emotional intelligence. Huh? Exactly. And, uh, and especially now, because there are so many stress factors around us uh, working from home or when dealing with families, when dealing with personal challenges, there's, we're going through a massive change in the world on so many levels, whether mm -hmm. labeling it negative or, or positive, there's so much change and uncertainty and conflict. Yeah. And this plays on people's ability to just withstand stress. So I mm -hmm. think it's, it's and, and everything is cyber, whether you like to admit it or not, of course, there are specific strengths, but everyone is dealing with cyber because we are working and living online most of the time. No. Which which brings me to, to our last question. And I think from your point of view, if, if you actually would look back, uh, imagine yourself uh, looking back uh, a few years, uh, what are some of the lessons you wish business leaders, you would like them to know when it comes to legal compliance? What are some of the misconceptions that we have about legal? And what are some of the myths you want to bust? And what are the key lessons you want to leave our audience with when it comes to regulation and liability and compliance and cybersecurity? I think I can say in general, in no matter in which field legal professionals work, there is this myth that if you have a longer text, then it's, oh yeah, of course, because the legal advisors, they, they get paid by our weeks and things like this. But reality is, and also with new regulations, and as we see it now in the European Union coming up with new and new more directives and regulations, the point is that obviously there is a need for it. So if that wouldn't happen so much, if people would reasonably act with responsibility, then you wouldn't have to force them to obey to any legal requirements. So it's also... Like before with the ISO care, it's also with driving a car on the street. Yeah? There didn't used to be any rules, but because there were so many accidents and, and things happening, we came up with rules for the streets. And it's the same in, for example, for cybersecurity. If people think it's not necessary to follow strict protocols, then we need to have the regulation to protect our systems. And that in the long run is... I think benefit a big benefit for everybody of us. Yeah? So it's not just to to keep the lawyers busy, um, but I think it's very important to react on the developments in the market and also uh, on the cybersecurity threat landscape yeah? 
to have the, the legal requirements for it. And for example, as you mentioned before, the NIST 2 directive, that is also a little bit with the, the, the Sullivan case, maybe to, to compare, yeah, NIST 2 directive will, for example, have directly or uh, personally liability for infringements of the management body cell by the legal entity if there is a lack of compliance with implementing cybersecurity risk management measures. Yeah? And the reason why lawmakers come up with such rules yeah, is that so far there hasn't been any liability and people thought, I'm not responsible, I'm the CEO or I'm somebody in the management board. We have our CEO and he is responsible, but that's not the thing. Yeah, It's not a one-man show. The whole uh, company and especially the management um, bodies have to um, stand behind their, their cybersecurity measures yeah, and protect their their digital assets and their yeah. systems and data. Yeah. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing it. And I think just to complement what you said, if we start seeing people as people and not functional expert, experts, we can go a long way in smooth collaboration and risk reduction. Because often what happens when we have expectations about what a lawyer's agenda is. A lawyer's mm -hmm. agenda is to make my life more difficult if you are a salesperson, for example. Uh, CEO, oh, I need a lawyer to feel more safe, for example. Or a CISO will see uh, a lawyer is not doing enough, is trying to check up on me if I'm doing my work well, versus seeing Bianca who wants and is willing to help to reduce the risk for everyone as people. It's a whole different Absolutely. energy and whole collaboration in your brain, which I always advocate with also the emotional intelligence. See people as people who have amazing expertise, who have a lot of things to bring to the table. But when we start working and seeing each other as people who have the best interests of the company, of the team, of the public group, the customers he serves, that's a whole different risk reduction strategy than if we come weapon with our biases and with our opinions and with our judgment. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work in the long run. And I think that is something that this industry could benefit greatly from. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I can't help but ask one more last question because you are cybersecurity woman of the year. What would you give uh, as a message to younger women who are trying to break in this industry or who perhaps are reflecting but are intimidated by it and who only think that a technical career is possible? Oh, I would say that's absolutely not true. <laughs> uh, I think there are so many different aspects of cybersecurity, whether it has something to do with technology, uh, technical aspects, with legal aspects, uh, uh, or consulting, whatever. Yeah. There are so many different aspects of this really highly interesting field. Uh, and I think if you want to get involved in this field, then just do it. <laughs> there are so many great people and mentoring programs who are, who are willing to help you. There are so many, there are so many possibilities to educate yourself, books, uh, webinars, whatever. Yeah. I think it's really not a problem nowadays to, to get started. Uh, if you're willing to educate yourself and, and put some, some effort into it, uh, and the world needs more cybersecurity professionals yeah, in which uh, direction ever. Yeah. So yeah. I hope there will be yeah, a lot of women who will follow this path. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and we need it because, like I said, cyber is our nervous system. Absolutely. Whatever we do. 
So we need to make sure our nerve, I, I wrote yesterday, if there's disruption in our nervous system, then our behaviors are disruptive as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we need a healthy nervous system. Thank you so much, Bianca. How can people get in touch with you and, uh, and even connect with you online? Of course, on, on LinkedIn, yeah, Bianca Lin, so you will find me there. She's also uh, active on LinkedIn, always great insights, uh, which I enjoy. And it's been a great honor and pleasure. You've given me quite some light bulb moments as well and inspiration for additional content. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. And thank you, Bianca. And I look forward to having you as a, an, another time as well. So we discuss the upcoming Cyber Resilience Act, which I'm quite passionate about because it's going to be another game-changing up, upgrade level for, for the European market. Absolutely. Oh, thank you very much, Nadia. It was a pleasure being here today and having this conversation. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning into the EQ Emotional Intelligence Elevator podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained valuable insights into the world of emotional intelligence. To learn more about Thrive with EQ and Nadia's mission to build stronger, more resilient workplaces through higher levels of emotional intelligence, visit our website at thrivewitheq.com. You'll find a plethora of EQ leadership resources, tools, and services to help you and your organization thrive. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As always, keep thriving with EQ.